live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch, and thank you for that magnificent photo you sent from Spain yesterday. How's oh, your trip? It was very nice, just back off the plane a few hours ago. And hence the slightly late recording this week. Hope our listeners will uh, understand. We are doing a one-off special this week. This is based on current affairs. Wherever you look, newspapers, the media, you can't get away with the fact that there's bit of turmoil going on in the royal family and it's for you to tell us if this is the first time in history that the royal family had a dispute. Right. So as an introduction, since we are dealing with relationships this week, I wanted to mention that friends of mine, Rabbi Simi and Robertson Rifka Lerner, have a podcast called Nuanced Judaism. And at the moment, they are dealing with the subtle toxicity of codependence. Two takes on it. And therefore, I think it uh, is part of a relationship's idea. Either way, we are familiar with royal disputes in the media, as you mentioned, but they don't necessarily have specific interest to the Jews. However, monarchs since the beginning of time have been involved in confrontation, you know, land, power. It's the legacy of Esav, of Edom, Al-Kharbachotichia, to live by the sword. And it's actually a matter of pride. You know, King X, the brave, essentially translates as how many people did he kill in war? Hmm. Now, unsurprisingly, this would spill over to the family itself. The Romans excelled in wiping out their own families to forestall any threat to their power. And when we learn history until the early modern period, it's all about war, even in literature. I mean, where would Shakespeare be if he didn't have war? Richard III, Henry V, the War of the Roses. As you said, it's nothing to do with Jews. Were there even any Jews in that time? In England? In England? No, nor in France, I guess. But we are going to look at two kings in particular, and the Jewish view of those rulers will differ greatly from the history in school textbooks. But perhaps we will start with a book anyway, or the book, an extract which our own Rabbi Shobiton suggested. When Harry dressed up as Hitler in Nazi uniform and all the world's press reported it, his father, the now King's Charles, sent him to meet with Chief Rabbi Sachs. As he writes, he offered me a cup of tea, then dived straight in. He wasn't unkind, but it had to be done. There was no way around it. He placed my stupidity in historical context. He spoke about the six million, the annihilated, the Jews. He urged me not to be devastated by my mistake, but instead to be motivated. He spoke to me with the quality one often encounters in truly wise people, forgiveness. He assured me that people do stupid things, say stupid things, but it doesn't need to be their intrinsic nature. Now that Rabbi Sachs has passed on, I'm assuming if this ever happens again, they'll be coming to you. 
<laughs> not sure that I would want to deal with it. And I'm not sure how close to his heart he took this advice. But let's move back some 550 years to the famous Don Yitzchok Abarbanel or Abravanel. And the king of Spain. So, okay, we naturally associate him with Spain, both in terms of power and tragedy. But he had a life beforehand in Portugal, more powerful and more tragic. And just like Spain had a Jewish golden era, Portugal even more so. Not only were the Jews involved in finance, but even in the writing of law. And in particular, the years 1449 to 1481 were extraordinary for the Jews of Portugal. They lived where they wished, they established communities, and their skills made them wealthy and Portugal prosperous. Portugal had over 100,000 Jews in a general population of a million. And, you know, when a rioting mob attacked the three Jewish communities of Lisbon in 1449, King Alfonso V, who was in Evora, which was 70 miles away, immediately left for Lisbon. He gave orders to stop the rioting. He inflicted severe punishment against offenders. And this king relied heavily on the advice of the Duke of Braganza, who from 1471 to 1481 consulted almost exclusively with the Abarbanel and promoted him strongly to the king, who himself was an intellectual, a collector of books, a man of learning. How old was the Abarbanel at that time? So he is born in Lisbon in 1437, so he's in his late 30s. And he is learned, he is wealthy, he is respected. In fact, we can get an idea of how wealthy by the extent of his loans to the crown. In 1480, there were a group of Christians and Jews who lent the crown 12 million reals. Now, I don't know how much that is worth, but the fact that it's got the word million in it gives you an idea it was not a small amount. The Abarbanel's share was more than 10%. But... In August 1481, the king died unexpectedly at 49, a victim of the plague. And the king's successor was his son, John II, Chau, who was an extreme monarchist. He wanted total power and cut out his nobility, such as the Braganzas. And whereas his father, Alfonso V, had ruled through alliances and given large areas of land to nobility, John II reversed that dramatically. And obviously this new set of policies brought the king into outright conflict with two of his most powerful nobles, the Duke of Braganza and the Duke of Visui, who both attempted to halt or slow the king's new initiatives now, it's important to realize that the Duke of Visui was the king's brother-in-law and the Duke of Braganza was his wife's brother-in-law. And they were also both the king's first cousins. So this is very close to home. And this story isn't about bridesmaids' dresses or alleged tears. No, no. This is about real power, real politics and gets very messy. The uneasy peace is shattered when the king accused the Duke of Braganza of treason, he had him arrested on the 29th of May, 1483, 
and he was sentenced to death and a month later he was beheaded. And this scenario basically repeats itself a while later with the other duke, the king's own brother-in-law, whom the king stabbed to death himself. It's what you call real family conflict. You know, they didn't just write books about one another or make heavily remunerated Netflix appearances. And even though the Abarbanel was not active in the conspiracy, he would now be engulfed by it. Well, just because he was a Jew? Actually, almost not at all, because he was a confidant and advisor to these other members of the royal family and an advisor to the former king. His fate was sealed by association. So the day after the Duke of Braganza was arrested, this is now May 30th, 1483, the king dispatched a messenger to bring the Abarbanel to him in Evora. Now, the Abarbanel suspected nothing. He hadn't heard of his benefactor's arrest. So he goes. By evening, he was at Arayolos, and he stops overnight. He's now only a short distance from Evora, and the knowledge of the Duke's arrest was already widespread there. Also, Arayolos belonged to the Duke, this land, and the Abarbanel had acquaintances there. He's at the inn, and one of these acquaintances approaches him and tells him the terrible news, and that the king has a plan to purge the nobility, and the Abarbanel is likely to be included in this, and so he tells him, you better, you know, leave the country, basically. And the Abarbanel will write that he didn't relish the idea he would be abandoning his family and everything he owned, and he'd become a fugitive. He'd be declared a traitor to the king. But he realizes that if the powerful Duke of Braganza could be arrested, what chance would he stand to convince the king of his own innocence? So he turns south. He travels alone throughout the day on Portuguese territory, assuming that all the nearby roads to the border of Spain would be guarded by the king's soldiers. He's a fugitive. He's hunted by the king. And only in the middle of the second night is he able to cross the border to Castile, never, of course, to return to Portugal. And an arrest warrant from the Royal Records states, we sent a knight to the criminal, but though our knight did everything to constrain him, the criminal managed to escape. He was sentenced to death in his absence. Where did the Barbanel write about these things? So in his introduction to the book of Yeshua, in his introduction to the book of Malachim, in fact, he describes in what is very poetic Hebrew to those who are familiar with Itzias Mitzrayim or Megillas Esther or the story of Lot, it will really resonate. It's well worth the read. I'll just quote a couple of extracts. He says, you know, I innocently obeyed the royal order. Vayehi baderech b'maloin, ish it came to pass on the way, a man came before me and said to me, Al tikrav haloim, he'll molit al nafshecho, escape and save your life. And the Abarbanel ascribes pure divine intervention to his escape. Hashemesh yotza al haoretz, vahakol nishma beis pari. And when the sun rose, the report was heard in Pharaoh's house. Vahorotzim yotzu dechufim bidvar hamelech lemer, ridfu vesifsuhu achas domoi lahomis. 
And the messengers went forth in haste by the king's commandment and of the king. And he says, He treated as foreigners all the supporters of his father, even those that were his own flesh and blood. But the amazing thing in the Abarbanel's interpretation of his sudden downfall, you know, overnight, he's a refugee, he's a pauper, he's a fugitive. How would you reconcile that when you are charitable and learned and observant? You know, why did it happen? He says, Tzadik hu Hashem, God is righteous. Samto zov kislecho vatelech achare hagdula You put your faith in gold, you pursued greatness. And he says, I served kings rather than the one true king. And he says, if you forget gold, then the years of plenty will be forgotten. Study Torah day and night. And that is the true greatness of the Abarbanel emerging. And he says, when he came to Spain, God brought him before wise, knowledgeable men, and they encouraged him to write a commentary on Yeshua, Shreftim, Shmuel, and Malachim, which is what he did. Wow. Was he ever reunited with his family? Very much so, yes. They were able to leave to Spain, obviously without their possessions, but this was a man's world. It was him they suspected, and it wasn't an attack on the Jewish population. Unfortunately, though, over the next few years, the king did turn against the Jews. Some fled. The king dies in 1495, which is a year and a half before the Inquisition comes to Portugal, but three years after it started in Spain in 1492. And there is eyewitness testimony that King John II attempted to control the entry of Castilian Jews into Portugal, and he decreed that any Jew who converted to Christianity would be exempted from payment of taxes, he'd be excused from having to serve in the army, in war or peace, And his greatest evil was probably the Jewish children that the king forcibly removed from their parents and from Judaism in 1494. It was so shocking that most Christian authors, including his own biographers, don't mention the seizure of these children at all. Which means that one incident of internal royal conflict and their were shockwaves for the Jewish community, and that community would ultimately be destroyed by John II and his family. So 100,000 Jews in Portugal, 10% of the population. Yes. And the Inquisition wiped everyone out. The Inquisition in Portugal turned everyone into Christian. It wasn't the same as Spain. We'll have to talk about that at length one day, but Portugal was different to Spain. They didn't have a choice in the matter, more or less. They became Christians, whether they wanted to or not. Now, We've so far described one. I would like to describe another dysfunctional royal family, but this one in English history. Ah, more appropriate. And a major candidate is England, late 1100s. Henry II is the king. His wife, Eleanor, whom he imprisoned for 16 years, and their son, Richard, the so-called Lionheart, (laughs) who on various occasions waged war against his father, tried to get rid of him using any means and alliances on the instruction of his mother, 
making it perhaps unsurprising that she was imprisoned. I thought Richard the Lionheart was almost a legend. He's spoken about so highly in history books. So no Hollywood film has him as anything other than the hero, saving the country and saving Robin Hood from the uh, you know wicked machinations of Richard's younger brother, John. Real history tells a very different story, <laughs> as we will hear. In 1170... Henry II crowned his eldest son, Prince Henry, as co-regent, although it was a pretty meaningless act because the young king was given no independent power and he resented his position. What was the position of a co-regent? Now, that officially he is ruling alongside his father, but he doesn't have any power. Mm -hmm. So after three years, he took independent action and raises his own army. And his brother, Richard, joins this protest, and they are both supported by Eleanor, by their mother, by Henry's wife. Young Henry writes to the Pope complaining about his father's behaviour, and the brothers now ally themselves with the French king, Louis VII, and they acquire followers, William of Scotland and various nobility, and there's now a war, an actual war between the father and the sons. The alliance with the French was initially successful, and they captured various territories from their father. But Henry II then raised an army of more than 20,000 mercenaries. And in the battles that followed, Eleanor was captured and imprisoned by her husband. And eventually, there's a truce that was arranged. It's temporary. And then in 1183, the young Prince Henry died, and now Richard's in the driving seat. And war breaks out again between the father and the son. Once again, Henry II was successful. And the short war ends in stalemate and a tense family reconciliation at Westminster. Similar to, <laughs> you know, present day, but under very different circumstances. This is at the end of 1184. And the final few years of Henry II's reign up to his death in 1189 continue with more confrontations. So he is fashioned somewhat of an empire, made England a powerful nation, and his sons begin the process which tear it apart. And he finally dies on the 6th of July, 1189. It's a far cry from overbearing Paparazzi. <laughs> yes. So yeah. very dysfunctional. Right. Where do the Jews fit in, if at all? Okay, so we have to contrast these two kings, the father and the son. During the long reign of Henry II from 1154 to 1189, the Jews essentially enjoyed peace. The crusaders in England during the first two crusades did not carry out any massacres on English soil against the Jews, as unfortunately did happen to the Jewish communities of Germany and France. It's true, the king milked the Jews to the utmost. But at the same time, he protected and to a certain extent even encouraged them. He not only confirmed, he even extended his grandfather's charter of protection. He formally granted the Jews of England the privilege of internal jurisdiction of law in accordance with the Talmud, except in the cases of offences against public order. Even the church treated the Jews with tolerance. They were allowed to, uh, you know, place their women and children in the monasteries for safety when there were disturbances. They even kept their business deeds in cathedral treasuries. 
Now, it's true, money did speak. So Aaron of Lincoln, who we discussed in the very, very first podcast we ever made, who was probably the wealthiest person in England, when he dies, the king takes all his property, just takes it. Interestingly, though, the treasure was sent over to France to assist in the war there because England owned part of the territory of France. And interestingly, that ship was lost with all the treasure that it contained crossing the channel to Dieppe in February 1187. So you have God intervening there. So between this and last week's episode of the trains, there's quite the treasure map to be had. <laughs> right, that's true. And you had, for instance, during the reign of Henry II, Jacob, who is a rich Jew, at the beginning of the reign, married a Christian who was wealthy and converted her to Judaism, but he's still allowed to return to England, which is, you know, unprecedented almost. You also have, during the reign of Henry II, the Ebenezer from Spain visits London in 1158. You don't make that journey if it's not a relatively safe country. You have Ravionte of Joigny, who is a pupil of the famous Rabbeinu Tam, who settles in York. You have a fellow Talmud, uh, Rav Yaakov of Orléans, who also moves to London, both Bali Tosus, quoted in Tosus. Um, that's Henry II. In contrast, let's move to Richard. On the eve of his departure, to what became the third crusade to the Holy Land, he is crowned. At his coronation in 1189, the Jews, having until this period been accepted and tolerated, want to extend their rights of tenure. But from the start, things did not bode well for the Jews. A proclamation was issued that no Jew could attend the coronation. It's going to be somewhat different when King Charles will be coronated in May this year, although the coronation is on Shabbos. Yes, so okay, but if they want to attend... Informally uninvited. Right. Now, on the afternoon of the coronation day, which was September the 3rd, Sunday, a deputation from the Jews of the kingdom nevertheless presented itself at the entrance to Westminster Hall with expensive gifts in the hope of obtaining a renewal of the Charter Privileges. And things turned ugly. Several members of this Jewish deputation were beaten or trampled to death by the crowds at the palace gates. There was a Jew called Benedict, who was very wealthy, who had come as one of the Jewish representatives of the community of York. Remember, this is before the whole story there. He saved his life only by consenting to embrace Christianity, and he's immediately baptized. And news of this upheaval in Westminster spreads. And it now is, so to speak, rumored in the streets that the king had given orders for the Jews to be killed. It's not true, but that's the rumor that comes out. And a mob heads for the Jewish streets. The Jews living in stone houses were able to resist for some hours but towards nightfall one of the mob threw a lit torch which set fire to a thatched roof and the flames spread and soon basically most of the jewish area was on fire 30 people lost their lives either from fleeing or within the fire amongst them being the rav yakov of orleans this baltosus who was then buried near what is now the barbican in london 
And the news is eventually reported to the king as he's sitting, you know, sort of banqueting. But when the king sent a justiciary to inquire into these crimes, the guilt is, so to speak, found to involve so many citizens that it was felt more prudent to drop the prosecution and very few suffer punishment. What was the punishment? Well, three of the ringleaders were hanged, one for robbing a Christian and two because the fire they had started burnt down a Christian house. Wow. So little else was done afterwards except to send letters to all parts of the kingdom ordering the Jews to be left in peace. But much worse was to follow. England at the time is overrun with crusader zealotry and preparation, a crusade which was going to be led by their own king, Richard. And the Jews around England this time are targeted. Other cities, hearing of this slaughter of the Jews in London, imitated the example. The Christian writers of the day had written with disapproval that the government of Henry II, even though it was so advanced, had nevertheless protected this infidel Jewish race from all uh, injury and insult. But now the zeal of Richard for liberating the Holy Land gave the population a pretense for venting their animosity against them. Did this lead to York? So it culminates with York, and we do not find any intervention by the king as such. Not because we can claim him to be, so to speak, an anti-Semite, but because this does not seem to be something of interest to him, very different to his father in that respect. To give you an example of these riots, in February, the first outbreak is in Kings Lynn in Norfolk, and the Jewish community there is almost wiped out. A few days later, Norwich suffers the same fate, and then there are large numbers of crusaders who had assembled in Stamford, and they were angry that the enemies of the cross should possess all this money when they didn't even have enough money to make the journey yet. So they attack these Jews and they killed anybody who didn't get to safety in time. And now in July 1190, this is post York, eight months into his reign, Richard travels to the Middle East with his armies to begin the Third Crusade. Three years later, this crusade ends with no result. His goal had been to liberate Jerusalem, as he writes, Jerusalem is for us an object of worship that we could not give up even if there were only one of us left. This is what he warned in writing Saladin, his opponent, to which Saladin responded in writing, Jerusalem is ours as much as yours. Indeed, it's even more sacred to us. So now it's 1192. Richard's forced to admit that even with so many lives lost, the Muslims and the Franks are done for. And as he wrote, the land is ruined at the hands of both sides. Just by the way, one of his skirmishes out there was the slaughter of 3,000 Muslim hostages, men, women and children, in sight of the armies of Saladin. So much for the legend of chivalry. But it's a stalemate. On Richard's return to England, he is captured by his enemy, the Duke of Austria, and a ransom of £100,000 is the price for his release. So in England, 
every fibre is strained by the king's mother, Eleanor, who has now been released from prison on her husband's death, and she's agitating for Richard. But in order to raise the amount, the Jews are made to contribute disproportionately. They are assessed at 5,000 marks, which is three times as much as all of the citizens of London, which was the wealthiest in the country. And the Jewish representatives are summoned to Northampton, March 30th, 1194, to decide what amount each community would pay. And this get-together is a particularly valuable record of medieval English Jewry, because it tells us where the Jews lived. There are 20 major communities. It also tells us that the most important ones were London, Lincoln, Canterbury, Northampton and Gloucester. And it's interesting that places like York and Stamford and Lynn, where the worst outbreaks had happened four or five years earlier, are conspicuous by their absence. They still haven't built themselves up. In other words, in short, and in contrast to his father, Henry II, Richard the Lionheart's reign marks the decline of the Jews in England, and it would end a century later with their expulsion. And in Cecil Roth's book, the reign of Richard is entitled The Beginning of Persecution. So you mentioned earlier that wasn't coming from necessarily anti-Semitic reasons. What was it from? The but they are being unprotected by the king who has a very short-term view that taxation will outweigh all other considerations, and that becomes the norm for the next century until they're kicked out. Whereas, you know, a less confrontational monarch would have been able to think longer term. Under his rule, the Jews go from being a protected group, albeit second class, to becoming a, a prop for the kingdom, or for the king, really. And his general legacy is failure. He always wore scarlet as a symbol of war, but he lost the wars he fought with his father. He didn't secure Jerusalem. His own country is neglected. Unlike his father, Henry II, whose input into the country reformed, laid some of the present-day foundations of the legal system, the jury system. In opposition to this, the belligerent son Richard spent less than six months in total in England during a 10-year reign. So, you know, his involvement in the alleged story of Robin Hood would have been extremely unlikely. Anyway, he didn't speak English. He isn't buried in England. There's not a lot to talk about. <laughs> so the Lionheart was probably a nickname he coined for himself. Potentially. I suppose it's also a shame he couldn't have taken out his anger by writing an autobiography. Yes, rather than in bloodshed, yeah. uh, because England, the Jews and the land of Israel would all have been a better place for it. So, yes, dysfunctional family and its effect on the Jews. But let's end on a positive note, uh, related only to the idea of influential family squabbles and their outcome on the national scene. I'm sure we could devote a series to that. Yes, <laughs> but this is one story, a true story, in fact, a story within a story. In 1827, William B. Astor Sr. bought a large portion of Fifth Avenue, all the way from 32nd to 35th Street. And two Astor houses were built there over the years, next door one another. In 1893, William Waldorf Astor, motivated by a dispute with his aunt Caroline Webster Astor, 
basically the dispute was over who should be called Mrs. Astor, should it be his aunt or his wife. He builds the Waldorf Hotel next door her house by knocking down his father's mansion at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 33rd. Now, Astor never stayed in his own hotel when he visited the U.S., and in fact, he probably only visited the Waldorf once. But the construction of this hotel next to his aunt's house basically exacerbated his feud with her, and she was forced out of her home. So she pulls down her house with the help of her son, and they build their own hotel next to the Waldorf, the Astoria, four years later in 1897. What are the chances? And they capitalised on the success that the Waldorf had already gained. You know, anything you can do, I can do better. Anything you can build, I can build too. Bigger, better. The Astoria is 270 feet, 16 storeys, at least three floors taller than the other one. Now, eventually... The Astoria was leased to a guy called George Bolt, who had helped to open the Waldorf years earlier. So he's involved in both. And he goes on to mediate between the two feuding families. And they join these two hotels together, forming the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. And a 300-meter bridge was built between the two. And the bridge obviously symbolizes a physical link and the rejoining of the families and the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Now, there is an alleged anecdote that tells the rise of Waldorf's first manager, George Bolt, in that many years ago, or many years prior, on one stormy night, an elderly man and his wife entered into the lobby of a small hotel in Philadelphia, looking for shelter from a raging storm, and the couple was desperate for a room. The front desk manager looks down the list of reservation and realises that all the rooms are taken. So he says to them, I can't send a couple like you out into the rain. Would you perhaps be willing to sleep in my room? It's not a suite you'll be comfortable they took up the offer the next morning the husband tells the manager you're the kind of individual who should be the boss of the best hotel in the united states maybe someday i'll build one for you two years later this guy receives a letter from that couple with a ticket to new york when he arrives they take him to fifth avenue they point towards a tall new building and the elderly man says this is the hotel i'd like you to manage the waldorf <laughs> now, in the obituary of Bolt, published in 1916, the New York Times finally revealed the true story. Turns out there is something to it. Bolt and his family gave up their rooms at a resort for relatives of the Astors and their sick child. The child recovered, and later the relatives persuaded millionaire Astor that Bolt, who did manage a hotel in Philadelphia, was the man he was looking for to manage his new hotel in New York, the Waldorf Astoria. So Bolt did set the gold standard of hospitality. Well, brilliant. One episode we covered Richard the Lionheart and the Waldorf Astoria. Exactly. All thanks to Prince Harry. This podcast has been dedicated by Adam, our sound technician, who's been behind all of the podcasts, in memory of Robertson Sharon Schenker, who passed away tragically this week in Los Angeles, the Neshomash Tavernalia. Next week, we will be taking a break and then immediately back 
with a series on the Vilna Gorn, alongside the great Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz, similar to our previous series on the Ramchal and on the Maharal. Which were both very, very well received, and we indeed had a lot of feedback on them and requests for further, so we have listened. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch, for a fascinating special. And looking forward to hearing next week's. As usual, please subscribe and follow so you don't miss another episode. And do keep sending to podcasts at jle.org.uk. All your feedback, it's always appreciated. Thank you. <laughs>